first of all, uh, it's Marx's concept of human nature. This was expounded in the economic and philosophical manuscripts, which he wrote in 1844, but which did not come to light until about 1930, about that time. Marx's concept of human nature, or concept of man, if you want to put it that way, uh, is divided into two parts. Uh, first of all, there is man's essential nature, And then there is man's historical nature, which means man's nature as it developed after the prehistoric primitive period. Now, the essential nature itself uh, is going to be divided into two parts. Uh, first, the part which refers to the, the genus, animal, to which man belongs. This is, we're proceeding now in what I call a pseudo-Aristotelian uh, 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 sequence. Man is, first of all, an animal. That's the genus. It's the first part of the essential nature of man. Uh, what does he have in common with animals? The fact that he is productive. Productive. The fact that, like them, he is a material being living from nature and dependent upon nature, transforming nature into his own products, creating such things as anthills, nests, and condominiums. Uh, now, uh, 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 now, this whole, uh, you might call it the differentia, that we're, we're going to look at the differentia now, and namely what makes man special. And what makes man special is an extremely complicated concept, uh, which I have to unfold very carefully. Uh, Marx in the manuscripts called man a species being, a species being. The uh, word in German is Gattungsfacen. I don't know how important that is, but I guess it's not. Uh, now this, in the first place, is an attempt to establish man as, in Marx's sense, quote, rational, unquote. All right, we start with the fact that man labors cooperatively. Now, his laboring is, however, uh, not absolutely automated like the labor of the ant. Man has to choose in the process of laboring. In order to choose, he needs language. So the next step, the, or, 
the first step in establishing that man is a species being is that he has language. Language is a social product. Now, you see, first there comes the fact that he lives in society. The fact that he lives in society and works cooperatively makes necessary language. And language, in turn, is going to be the creator of reason. So, you see, man is a rational animal because he is a language-using animal because he is a social animal. Consciousness, therefore, Marx says, and I'm now quoting, is from the very beginning a social product and remains a social product as long as men exist at all. Man's uh, consciousness distinguishes his life sharply from the activity of the animals, for when the animal acts, it's totally immersed in each activity. Now, this is very important. When the animal acts, he's totally immersed in each activity. When man acts, on the other hand, he distinguishes sharply between himself and each activity. I know that I'm now lecturing rather than taking notes, but this morning uh, Dr. Peikoff was lecturing and I was taking notes. Man, he knows there's an alternative all the time. He makes a selection from a vast range of activities. He then acts, aware that he's doing one thing rather than another. The matrix of this awareness is social interaction. Now, let me construct an imaginary dialogue. You down there, what are you doing? I'm fishing. I thought you were going hunting this afternoon. I was, but I got sidetracked by all the fish in the stream here. Now, that's how he knows what he's doing. You see, he gets into a, a conversation about it. So, man acts, aware of his action, yet aware of the fact that there were a lot of other possible actions open to him. This range of possible actions may be expressed by the word his potentialities. His potentialities. The potentialities are not merely his, they're the potentialities of the whole species. Now watch and you're gradually going to see a kind of quasi-definition of species being emerging. Each man is aware of the human species as an arsenal of potentialities, which he as an individual may at any moment actualize. Think of all the things that you could be doing, uh, hang gliding this afternoon and so forth and so forth. He chooses which potentialities to actualize, but doesn't completely identify with any of the, uh, of the potentialities. It's like choosing, a, uh, sometimes the way some people choose a girlfriend, you know. I mean, there are all these other possibilities, these other potential human relations which they can enter into. Man is thus an acting as a stand-in for the whole species every time he does something. When he views his life as a whole, he's viewing it as one expression of species life. Now, this is all the, part of the whole mysticism of the foundations of Marxism. Uh, uh, that's why your choice of a career and everything is so important in the Marxist uh, subculture, because you have the responsibility, perhaps, of actualizing uh, the essence of being a philosopher rather than being the, the essence uh, of being a lawyer or something like that. This freedom which man has of choosing is very different from the lives of animals. For animals act under compulsion 
They act. Animals, subhuman animals, act in order to survive. Subhuman animals act in order to survive. Man, on the other hand, on the other hand, is free from the compulsion to perform this act rather than that, but also free in a certain sense from physical need. Man produces in the true sense, I'm quoting Marx now, man produces in the true sense when, here's the beginning of the quote, when he is free of physical need. That's when he truly produces. And this is the only free and unalienated type of labor when he is not deliberately laboring for his own survival. Such free production is self-expression. Self-expression. You just sort of serendipitously find something to do and sort of enjoy while you're working. You doodle. Now, that's a good example, you see. This is true freedom, true human productivity. In such free production, says Marx, Marx men affirm themselves. The German word there is bejahen. They yah themselves. They uh, 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 say yes to themselves. They confirm themselves. They actualize themselves. Now, this is the root of many, many uh, doctrines that are in our culture today and that are being peddled uh, under the name of self-actualization. This self-actualization is the self-actualization of the individual acting as a stand-in for the species. Marx's position on this point is intelligible only on the assumption that he is operating from, he, Marx, is operating from a hidden premise that man's individual self is only another bud on the vine. There are billions of buds. Only the manifestation of an underlying universal self Remember that universal self that we saw last time in connection with Kant's idea uh, of the uh, universal self-legislator? Not you, not I, but all of us, the whole species. This premise is assumed in some way or other. It was assumed by Hegel, before him by Kant, before him by Rousseau. It has a long prehistory behind Rousseau. We must conclude from this premise that each of us as individuals can achieve real self-fulfillment only by actualizing the potentialities of the species rather than unique individual potentialities. Our own goals. Our goals are valid only insofar as we consider them as appropriate to the species within the proper historical circumstances. We are true individuals only to the extent that we affirm the general will. Now, get that. This is the sense in which Marxists sometimes claim to be individuals. They say, we're not collectivists, we're individualists. Because by affirming uh, our, our individual potentialities uh, in the appropriate way at a certain time, like being revolutionaries at a certain time, we are actualizing the species, and this is the only way to ever actualize an individual. Now, this seems to be the inner meaning of Marx's thesis that we achieve true self-actualization only as species beings. 
Now this means that we must be free to work in which in a, in what Marx calls a truly human way to work in a truly human way. Now I'm giving you here his doctrine of non-alienated labor and I'm giving you the negative doctrine before the positive doctrine what is non-alienated labor it is truly human labor. To work in a truly human way means to have the opportunity to express a whole range of human potentialities by working at a whole range of jobs all at once. Here is Marx's ideal of work. Quote, to hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, rear cattle in the evening, criticize after dinner, nothing yet about brain surgery or anything, <laughs> criticize after dinner, just as I have a mind, without ever becoming hunter, fisherman, cowherd, or critic. Now, what basic economic uh, principle is that the denial of? Division of labor, yes. He had already read Adam Smith and uh, Ricardo and Say when he, when he had wrote this, and he was well aware of the doctrine of the division of labor. So, uh, you do all these things without committing yourself to anything, without being anything specific, without having any work identity, without having any vocational identity. Ideal labor demands, quote, freedom, unquote, to choose among an infinite number of opportunities that I simply stumble upon with perfect serendipity, to choose them, quote, just as I have a mind. He got this image of man from the utopian socialist uh, Charles Fourier, F-O-U-R-I-E-R, -E who in his ideal community of harmony had a setup in which an imaginary member of the commune has a summer schedule in which he has a session hunting at 5.30 a.m., a uh, session fishing at 7 a.m., with the sheep raisers later in the afternoon, and then after dinner he attends art, concert, dance, and theater. Just like we have it set up here, you see. Uh, uh, now, uh, this, uh, those of you, those of you who have read B.F. Skinner's Walden too will probably uh, remember how this Marxist doctrine is reflected there. Now, note an important fact. In uh, this ideal is the exact opposite of the actual situation in Marxist countries where one is very likely to be forced to serve in certain vocations, not just as I have a mind, but just as the bureaucrats have in mind. So, uh, that, now we've set up a real contradiction between the original Marxist humanism and uh, and uh, the actual situation in Marxist countries. Now, you know a synthesis is coming. Uh, now, Marx denies that this kind of labor is the same thing as amusement or play. For he tells us in a major 
uh, work also discovered and published in the 20th century, the uh, Grundrisse, uh, or outlines, uh, that later uh, came to be used uh, in the formation of capital. He tells us in the English translation, page 611, that when we say that, quote, labor becomes attractive work, the individual's self-realization, this in no way means that it becomes mere fun, mere amusement. Really free working, such as musical composing, is at the same time the most damned seriousness, the most intense exertion, unquote. Free labor is not then play, if by play we mean amusement. The idea that work would be real play was the doctrine of the utopian socialists. But we must ask, what does it matter? What difference does it make if I work with the most damned seriousness if the work doesn't secure my survival? I might as well play. Well, Marx has an answer for this. Now, remember, we're dealing in an enormous floating abstraction here, and you, you've got to sort of put away your awareness of the absurdity of this situation and just try to follow along Marx's, quote, thought, unquote. Uh, uh, <laughs> Marx has an answer to this. Imagine a community in which different individuals actualize their potentialities by farming in the morning, producing spark plugs in the afternoon, <laughs> I've got to find something for Spinoza now. Grinding lens uh, in, the, in the evening. Uh, now, the result of all these productive activities is a, is a GCP, gross communal product, <laughs> which, which the producers contribute to a common store. Then each of them takes from the store as he needs in order to survive. As he needs. Now, this is where this is how you 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 uh, work for your survival. The real work is going shopping. You see, the Marxist uh, uh, supermarket. Now, the other work, you see, was to express yourself, and that's what has produced all the stuff, which is then dumped into the Marxist supermarket. And the rest, you, the work for survival, is just wheeling the grocery cart. Uh, so you see, everyone's need to survive can be taken care of by everybody simply expressing himself. A dialectical triad has worked itself out. Thesis, the need of everyone to express himself. Antithesis, the need of everyone to survive. Synthesis, communism, from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs. Ability means the ability to actualize oneself. This, according to Marxists, is the only truly human mode of production. It involves working, quote, just as I have a mind, unquote, and the freedom to see a product through from beginning to completion. The free, not just handing it to someone else and having... I, I, I build a whole uh, uh, Rolls Royce or something like that, you see? Well, they wouldn't have Rolls Royce. It also means being free from market forces, of course, obviously. I mean, that goes without saying now imagine that somewhere, somehow, somewhere, somewhen, there did exist a so-called ideal society like this. And suppose that suddenly there were introduced the division of labor and free markets. 
Now you have the beginning of history. What you have had so far is primitive communism. So mark that down. Primitive communism, non-alienated labor. Suppose that suddenly there were introduced the division of labor in free markets. What do you think that these people would say as soon as the division of labor in free markets came along? Pardon, guy? Now, how would they feel? How would they express their feelings? They would say, I'm alienated. I'm alienated. Uh, in terms uh, alienation uh, means a parting with something, almost in the sense of amputation, like when the next worker on the assembly line takes the thing away from you and puts the rear end onto what you've put the front end onto, you see. Uh, he's taking it away from you. And there's also a sense of estrangement, or becoming strange, becoming distant. Workers are said to be alienated in capitalist society from their products when the products are taken away from them by their employers as well as by their fellow workers. Uh, workers then experience the labor they perform as alien to them, that is, to their human needs and aspirations. Workers are said to stand in an alien relation to the environment in which they work. The division of labor is said to be alienating because it separates people into rigid categories, such as carpenters, plumbers, janitors, and brain surgeons, developing some potentialities of each while denying his other potentialities, thus violating his individuality and his integral humanity. So you see these poor fellows, uh, they will be suffering. Further, the activities of themselves fall into assembly line bits and pieces. Take the practice of medicine. Its wholeness is soon broke up, broken up into cardiology, surgery, neurology, and so on. The economic system itself is said to be alienating in that it sets the interests of each against the interests of everyone else. Then, in the modern state, now here's political alienation, the individual's participation in public life in the role of citizen is split off from his activity as a businessman or worker where he pursues his own interest. As citizen, of course, he pursues the public interest. And both of them are split off from personal life. All these alienations are the expressions of a single system of alienation. And they are all uh, part of the shattering of a unity, of a wholeness. The whole product should somehow be made by the worker. Working upon the product and ownership of a product should form a whole. A man should be able to take care of all his needs, raise his food, make his clothes, his shelter, heal himself, perform bone surgery on himself, uh, and so on. The individual in actualizing himself should actualize the whole species, not all at once, but at least in the course of a day. There is here a kind of mysticism, a holistic mysticism, spelled H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C. There's a strong prejudice against the rational division of a tasks into parts, in other words, against goal-directed activity. 
against divisions in time and space, against actions constructed out of subdivisions, some of which may not be immediately present to perception. There is a kind of immediatism, a non-negotiable demand that the perceptual level be made the standard of what is natural. See? Uh, now, I think that this is the sort of thing that I was able to see only after I came to understand objectivism, to see this particular demand on the part of Marx as, as the expression of a demand from the perceptual level. And I, I can only say that uh, Ayn Rand just showed me uh, where to look and, and how to look in analyzing these floating abstractions. This uh, tendency of immediatism reaches its height in Marx's treatment of money. And you probably all, or a lot of you probably have read uh, what he says about money. He says, my own power is as great as the power of money. This is alienation. Now remember, when money comes along, everybody gets more alienated. Uh, the properties of money become my own abilities. I'm, I'm quoting now. What I am and can do is not determined by my individuality. I am ugly, but I can buy the most beautiful woman for myself. You get it? Uh, consequently, I'm not ugly. See, it's wiping out my, indivi my ugly individuality. I'm alienated. Uh, for the effect of ugliness, namely its power to repel, is annulled by money. I am stupid. But I can buy talented people to work for me. Is not he who has power over the talented more talented than they? I who can have through the power of money everything for which the human heart longs. Do I not possess all human abilities? Does not my money therefore transform all my incapacities into their opposites? If I am lame, I can hail a taxi. Thus, Money makes me healthy again. He's complaining. You understand this? He's complaining. Uh, so this is how my integral humanity is, is uh, violated. I can buy love. I can make myself into a stimulating person and so on by money. Un unquote. More or less unquote. I put a few of my own words in. And... is complaining about the fact that the existence of money in principle not only helps us to take care of our lameness, but helps also stupid people to seem intelligent. And therefore, money uh, is uh, 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 bad, you see, because it removes the naturalness and sincerity, the face-to-faceness uh, -face of, of life. Uh, I can't, I better not answer questions during the, the lecture period. I'd like to, but I, I, I got a deadline facing me here. I'm alienated and I got, I got, uh, uh, so again, there's the same dichotomy between the truly human values and the values of modern civilization. The values of modern civilization are alien and unnatural. The very thing that 
Rousseau had said 80 years before in his discourse on the arts and sciences. Now we come to the crucial matter of self-worth. Self-worth. Marx says that alienated people are rendered worthless and devoid of dignity. Under existing social relations, quote, man is a degraded, despicable being, unquote. I can have no self-worth, no self-esteem under the market. Why? Because only by acting as a species being can I truly fulfill myself. But I can truly fulfill myself only if my direct motive in production is to produce for the species rather than for myself as an individual. To fulfill myself, that is my true self, I must produce for man. And this must be my immediate motive, not the indirect effect of my activity. Under the free market, says Marx, quote, I have produced for myself and not for you just as you have produced for yourself and not for me. That is, our production is not production by man for man, not social production. We are not present as human beings for our reciprocal production. As men, we do not exist as far as our respective products are concerned. That is, I make something, you see, and it's sold on the market. I never see who buy it, and so forth and so on. Now... Don't misunderstand Marx. He doesn't deny that the free market has brought an immense increase in productivity and therefore an immense increase in human welfare. He does not question its ability to deliver the goods. Indeed, he praises that ability. But that ability has been exercised only at the cost of alienating man, depriving him of his happy self-fulfillment. And not fulfilling his true self, that is, his species self, he loses his moral worth. Now you see the influence of Kant coming in again. He loses his moral worth when he produces efficiently and he feels guilty. Not guilty because he's not following the Judeo-Christian ethic now, but guilty because he is not uh, following the ethics of a perfectly, uh, of a kind of a Leonardo da Vinci, a man of all trades, fulfilling uh, the whole species. Therefore, there's a profound conflict between moral worth and the ability to survive. Adam Smith's theory of the invisible hand, says Marx, is a correct description of capitalism. I can serve your interests only by pursuing my own. But I am serving your interests only indirectly, and that's the trouble. I'm not trying to serve your interests. I am acting selfishly. Because of this, a la Kant, you see, I should feel guilty. My motive is selfish, and as Kant has shown, it is the motive, the intention, that counts morally. However, as both Kant and Hegel have shown, my true self is a universal self. It is this universal self which is frustrated, and the frustration shows in my personal sense of guilt as I pursue my greedy profits as a capitalist. Man is therefore a divided self, his species self, and his fragmented, alienated self. The more successful he is, the less morally worthy he is. This, says Marx, shows the basic contradiction inherent in capitalism. All contradictions have a dialectical resolution. We must seek a resolution, 
not merely like Kant in the sense of advocating it, but in the sense of showing that it will be the inevitable outcome of history. Now, I just want to pause to uh, put up a, uh, a kind of outline of what has been said so far. Marx's concept of human nature, his essential nature, his historical nature, uh, man as animal. Now, this is under his essential nature. Essential nature repeated again, referring to up to here. Man as animal, man as rational. Species being. Remember that? Man's rationality is dependent upon his being a collective being, a social being, because of the social nature of language. Then comes the doctrine of non-alienated labor. Let's call it non-a-labor. Non-alienated labor. You see, I heard there were a bunch of Korzybskians holding a conference on the campus, and I came under their influence during lunch. Uh, uh, let's call it non-alienated labor. Then I expounded alienation. Then uh, I expounded the, concept, the Marxian concept of self-worth as a development of the Kantian concept of self-worth. Uh, and now we have come to the resolution of the contradiction. The resolution of the contradiction uh, as the inevitable outcome of history. And this is going to be the whole doctrine of historical materialism. Historical materialism. We are now starting in on historical materialism. Now, I'm going to uh, give uh, first uh, uh, Marx's uh, analysis of what he calls uh, social change. He, he thinks that social change is due to changes in production. And this is the principle of historical materialism. Historical materialism is the doctrine that all of history is explainable in terms of the nature and development of the factors of production, the different parts that go into production. History is the development of society. If this development is frozen at any, at any moment, the development of society, we can then study society's structure in a static way. If we do make such a structural analysis, we will find that any society in history has three levels. The lowest level is called... The, the, lowest, the lowest level is called the material forces of production. the material forces of production. Mines, factories, men, stores, and so on. Men are part of the material forces of production. Energy, techniques, skills, 
In other words, means and manpower. Now, the next level up is called the social relations of production. The social relations of production. This word, social relations, occurs everywhere in modern sociology, not just in Marxist teaching. The social relations of production consists of all the rules directing men in their use of the material forces of production, determining who has access to these forces, who must work, who are exempt from work, who has unearned income, quote-unquote. Uh, who has a uh, man who uh, works manually, who works at a desk, and who works under whose orders, and so on. This is roughly equivalent to what Hegel calls civil society. Now, this intermediate level is called the base, the base of society. The base. You see, what happens is that all these material forces get organized under social relations and you now have the base of society. The base of society is the rules governing access to means of production. Everything above that is called, you probably know. Does anyone know? The superstructure. The superstructure of society. Up here uh, are... Uh, all the uh, the laws, education here, books, churches, uh, universities uh, uh, with winding paths and so forth and so on, uh, and uh, all the uh, these things are not primary in a causal sense; they are determined by the base. So now you see the difference between the base and the and the superstructure. Now, here is the doctrine of economic determinism. That basically uh, the patterns and changes in society are caused by what happens in the base, in the social relations of production. Now, the formula for social change is the following. First occurs a change in the material forces of production so that new material forces come into being. Agriculture is discovered. Then occurs a growing tension between new material forces and the old social relations of production. Imagine that you had a hunting society uh, in which uh, all the wild corn was eaten by the men uh, when they came in uh, from their hunting, when they came back home at night. Now, some woman has discovered quite by accident that by dropping kernels of corn along in a row, she'll get stalks of corn in that row. Agriculture is accidentally discovered. Now, the men come home, uh, and in true masculine manner, they want to eat all the corn. So, you see, what she has to do is save some grains of corn. So, she has to initiate new social relations of production saying that so much of the corn shall be saved 
or as Marx calls it, hoarded, in order that we can have uh, agriculture. The old structure cannot contain the new forces. A thesis and an antithesis has been set up. When the tension between the men and the women have reached a certain point, there occurs a massive qualitative change. The change is called revolution, uh, and the women manage to uh, institute agriculture, and the men are forced to worship a goddess of fertility or something like that, you see? Uh, as a result of the revolution, this is in a superstructure, as a result of the revolution, new social relations come into existence. The whole foundation, the base, has changed. As a result, the superstructure must also change. Now we have identified the dynamics of change. Change comes with new technological inventions, which happen more or less automatically. They suddenly appear. Now, the following is a uh, reconstruction of the way in which things actually unfolded. The first stage was primitive communism. Marx thinks this was spread over the whole inhabited earth and ancestral to all other types of society. The entire energy of the people is absorbed in producing the absolute minimum called the necessary product, the minimum necessary to survival. The resulting product is what contemporary Marxist scholars call the necessary product. There is no saving, which Marx calls hoarding. There's no division of labor except among the sexes. By the way, Marx was an intense patriarchalist, and he, he thought that the early communism was a truly patriarchal society in spite of what modern feminist Marxists sometimes say. Using our schema, we may describe the society in the following way. The material forces of production are land, water, hunting, gathering, uh, reindeer, kangaroos, and so on. Uh, a primitive hunting society so far as the material forces of production are concerned. The social relations of production are communal labor, mutual aid, production by all, distribution by all. Distribution to all, I should say. As far as the superstructure is concerned, uh, it would consist mainly of, this is primitive communism now, telling stories, Singing round the bonfire down on the beach, uh, and other primitive and other primitive activities. Now, you know, one one of the tricks of Marxism uh, is to identify uh, uh, ideal conditions in some way, such as the fun of sitting around the fire uh, and dancing and. Uh, having social relations with people and feeling at one with nature and so on. They tend to identify this as much as, uh, as possible with communal ownership and thereby suggest that capitalism is all uptight and puritanical and so forth and so on. That's one of the reasons, one of the motives that went into the uh, student culture uh, of the uh, 60s and 70s and in, indeed into the student culture of the Weimar Republic. So that socialism is somehow supposed to bring about all this wonderful, uh, uh, free and joyous uh, existence. Now, the motive for production in primitive communism is to produce for the whole tribe. Uh, each individual produces in the process of production, from, he, he takes part in the process of production, 
In other words, there's a virtual absence of the division of labor. With respect to these two conditions, Marx's ideal of production has been satisfied. The uh, motive for production is to produce for the whole tribe and the participation of all in the production of practically everything. The worker thus actualizes himself as a species being. Now, does this mean that Marx regarded primitive communism as the ideal society? Not on your life. Would he want to live there? You can bet he wouldn't. Remember what Rousseau said when he thought of going back to primitive society? He said, I can't eat acorns. Uh, the appendix to the discourse on the origin of inequality. It's the same with Marx. What he very much disapproves of is the low standard of living. Now, here's a contradiction. A contradiction between a truly human mode of production and a truly inhuman shortage of products to consume. Marx, you may be sure, has a dialectical solution. The solution worked itself out in history. There were inventions like agriculture, discoveries like iron, iron plows began to be used. There was a massive change in the material forces of production. The result was the appearance of a total social product much greater than the product necessary for the satisfaction of the basic needs. This difference is called by Marxists. This change in the material forces of production brought about a revolution in the social relations of production. The revolution that was brought about in the social relations of production uh, is the coming of the division of labor and the private ownership of tools, therefore, apprenticeship, and so on. The new material forces of production then come in conflict with the social relations of production and transform them. Another, this is a revolution. Uh, there are no longer communist relations of production. There's a new type of relations of production, uh, which uh, is called uh, uh, al the alienated type uh, of uh, production or exploitation. Exploitation. Now we're making our first approach to the concept of exploitation. New social relations of production have emerged. They have the following elements. Private property, the division of labor, classes, trade, commodity production. By classes, Marx meant groups of men who are distinguished from each other by their relationship to the means of production. By the division of labor, he meant two things. One, occupational specialization. Two, the distribution of labor between those who own the means of production and those who merely work on them. Obviously, the division of labor in this second sense follows from private property in tools. And so we come to commodity production. There are two kinds of products, according to Marx, products produced for use and products produced for exchange. By products produced for use, he means products produced in order to be directly channeled, uh, directly channeled to the consumer. You see, uh, I cook my meal and I, I immediately consume it. 
when I make a chair for myself or a toy for my child or arrange flowers for someone I like. Such direct channeling may include contributing my product to the common store in order to have it distributed. Of course, Marx does not distinguish between a voluntary contribution of this nature and one simply picked up from me by the authorities of the community. Now, that, that is production for use, and we're going into that in more detail next time. By production for exchange, Marx means production for barter or monetary exchange. Any society characterized by private property is characterized by commodity exchange and exchange carried on between members of the production and exchange carried on between members of the society. Now you would think that commodity production would be a great boon to humanity, a wonderful step forward. This is not the way Marx looks at it. According to him, someone who produces for use lives by the product of his own labor. In other words, he lives from hand to mouth. From my hand to my mouth or from my hand to your mouth or vice versa, that's all right. There's a mystical unity involved here, a species unity, a unity between you and me, a unity between us and them. There's a unity between my labor and the product, a unity between the product and its consumption. As soon as I get it ready, I eat it fast. I don't even save it. I, I, I drink the wine instead of saving it for the party tonight or something like this. All this is immediately perceivable by the senses. While remaining on the perceptual level, I can literally see the product going from, from my hand into my mouth, you see? On the other hand, when I start to engage in commodity production, this mystical unity is broken. I no longer live on what I produce. I live to get rid of it. That's why I'm producing it, to get rid of it, so as to sell it, you see? See how he's remaining on the perceptual level? The distance is now from my perceived hand to the conceived mouth of somebody else. I can't even see the seller. And think of what uh, the buyer. And think of what happens when you have the New York Stock Exchange. Then you're really alienated. I, the, Mr. X, who may or may not show up at the market, who may or may not like my product, who may or may not wish to exchange it. That's who I'm producing for. You see, artists sometimes are approached by Marxists with this particular line. Uh, now this, you can say, is enough to thoroughly shake up somebody who demands to live on a perceptual level. He sees the work of his hand disappearing into the jaws of the cruel market. This is alienating. It shakes up his self-confidence. It destroys his joy in creation. Now, when production was for use, it was conducted in a spirit of conviviality. Now it is conducted in a spirit of worry and competitiveness and knitted brows and so forth and so on and looking at the clock. Uh, that's alienated labor. Now, all attention is now concentrated on the commodity as an entity, as an article to be sold. What is what is hidden in the commodity and forgotten is all the labor, all the sweat, all the social relations that went into making the commodity. It is not the human relations now. It is, the, it is not the human relations now. It is not any longer that warm I-thou relation, like when I'm 
giving a baby his bottle or something like that. It's not that that turns you on. It's the commodity. Uh, it's the article. And now occurs his doctrine of commodity fetishism. Commodity fetishism. Now, you see, he meant this in the sense of uh, a fetish that, uh, that you set up as a kind of a god whom you worship and you regard as a thing. But there's also a concept in modern psychopathology uh, of fetishism, like when you get turned on by somebody's socks or something, you know. And uh, 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 he, he, there was some of that. Uh, there was some of that in his doctrine too. Uh, uh, so commodity fetishism comes in when people are concerned with their products or with uh, the cars that they buy or whether their their lawns are more neatly. Uh, uh, trimmed and sprinkled than other people's lawns and so forth. Uh, but Marx lived before Kraft, Abing, or Freud, so we needn't go into that. Marx was trying to say that the commodity is endowed with mystical powers which it really does not have, and that it is made the object of a perverted human impulse that is corresponding to the turn-on by the socks. There's greed. You see, the businessman is turned on this way. He sees his commodity, uh, and uh, uh, he begins to get greed, or he's, uh, he's happy that he has more than the next fellow. He gets alienated, in other words. Not only trade, but private property and the division of labor are now taken up into commodity fetishism. The breaking up of the original unity. The unity of the species is uh, now shattered. Here are the words of Engels in his Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. Quote, The rise of private property led to exchange between individuals, to the transformation of products into commodities. Here lie the seeds of the whole subsequent upheaval, cause of all our troubles. When the producer no longer directly consumed his product, but let it pass out of his hands in the act of exchange, he lost control of it, you see? It was gone. People no longer knew what became of their products. The possibility is that one day it might be used against the producer to exploit and oppress him. For this reason, no society can permanently retain the mastery of its own production and the control over the social effects of its production until it abolishes exchange between individuals. Until it abolishes exchange between individuals, unquote. Now that is the socialist solution to the problem of commodities. The, you might call it the final solution to the problem of commodities. And it's just their first solution because later on they have another solution called the communist solution. And in, in time, you'll hear about that. Now we have a hint of what the Marxist program for the future is. To abolish exchange between individuals. It means to abolish all trade in which the state is not the intermediary. To control all prices, wages, allocations of capital, and other transactions. Now control means rational order. You know that very rational order which George Reisman showed in his book on the government versus the economy. It couldn't happen under socialism. They think it can happen only under socialism. In other words, all rational planning is to be exercised by the collective for collective goals.
exchange between individuals implies that the locus of reason is the individual. But they believe that the locus of reason is the social whole. Therefore, obviously, the individual cannot be trusted to plan. Marxism systematically denies that the locus of L-O-C-U-S, the locus of reason is the individual. It is of the essence of man that his reason is collective. However, at the breakup of, crim, of criminal, primitive communism, man denied his essence. This is the Marxist doctrine of the fall of man. As the result of the fall, history began. The apple is the commodity. Instead of Eve eating it, it goes out on the apple market. As Engels said, <laughs> as Engels said, herein, in the apple, lies the seeds of the whole subsequent upheaval. The apple I introduced into the quotation myself. Now, it, is this capitalism? No, it is not. This is merely exploitation. There's a whole process of exploitation of which capitalism is only the final phase. This process consists in a series of societies, all of them characterized by classes, all of them by the exploitation of one class by another, all of them by the presence of the institution known as the state. Classes we have already defined. With the coming of private property, the possession of the means of production passed into the hands of some classes where others, whereas others did not have the means of production. The other people, the propertyless people, were allowed access to the tools, to the means of production, under one condition. They were to use these means of production not only to produce the sustenance that they needed, but also uh, to produce wealth beyond that. To, in other words, to support the possessors of the tools and the factories. The labor that is necessary to produce the mere sustenance of the laborer is called by Marx necessary labor. The extra labor extracted uh, uh, by the owner, Marx calls surplus labor. That's our first understanding of what exploitation is. The extraction of surplus labor, Marx calls exploitation. For instance, a serf works on Monday and Tuesday enough to raise enough money for himself, and then on Wednesday through Saturday he has to work for the lord of the manor, who meanwhile uh, is living on, quote, unearned income, unquote. In Marx's word, words, capital has not invented surplus labor, but this came in at a very primitive stage, the stage of the monopoly of the means of production. Uh, it's the same through all the various stages before capitalism, slavery, feudalism, and so forth. Now, as for the state, it can be described roughly in the words of Engels, quote, an institution which sets the seal of general social recognition on each new method of acquiring property and uh, which uh, recognizes the rights of the possessing class to exploit the non-possessing. Upon the breakup of primitive communism, society passed through a series of stages. There was a non-European series and a European series. The non-European stage, the first stage, is called the Asiatic mode of production or Oriental despotism. 
The European theories is slavery, feudalism, capitalism. In the Asiatic mode of production, now get this, this has now been eliminated in the Soviet Union. This is what part of Marx they, try, they tried to bury in the Soviet Union. In the Asiatic mode of production, the state is the real owner of all property. Actual production goes on in small villages. The surplus product is given to the state in the form of taxes. The taxes take the form of compulsory labor and levies of the agricultural product. This came about largely through irrigation. Great value was placed on the development of certain sciences for the prediction and control of the water supplies and the technology necessary for the storage and distribution of the water. For the For this reason, priestly astronomers, this is the, these were the original professors of philosophy now, they constituted a privileged class, together with armies of hydraulic engineers, census takers, tax collectors. So what do we have here? State ownership of the means of production and control by armies of bureaucrats in the service of a small group of intellectuals. What does it sound like? It sounds like the Soviet Union. Now, is it any wonder that this concept became increasingly embarrassing to Marxists? In 1950, an official Soviet statement listed as the outstanding achievement in recent Soviet Oriental studies, quote, the route of the notorious theory of the Asiatic mode of production, unquote, uh, given in the current digest of the Soviet press. Since then, all mention of Oriental despotism, as Marx called it, has disappeared from handbooks, and modern Western scholars like uh, modern Western Marxist scholars like the archaeologist V. Gordon Child ceased all mention of the product without, of the of the subject without any any instructions whatever from the Soviet Union. Now, I guess I'll uh, stop at this point and go on into the development of capitalism next time. So, if you'd like to. to that I trust I trust you'll be satisfied with the answer when we get to the examination of the first volume of Capital and his analysis of the specifically capitalist mode of exploitation we're just talking about exploitation in general now not the alleged exploitation which entrepreneurs exercise you see so it's that question is a preliminary it's, it's rather early to consider that Harry Oh, yes. Yes, right. Uh, it's stored, he regards, the instrument of production is stored labor. And you turn on the motor or something like that, and it, it runs for 15 minutes, which means that 15 minutes of stored labor is used up. 
And we'll see how that works out in his analysis of the capitalist, the machine production. But that's the essential scheme. think that Marx ever answered that, but I can see how it might be starting to generate a difficulty. Could you explain to the audience what the difficulty is? Well, I would see that uh, a large part of the expense of businesses, in fact, is uh, provision for replacement plant and equipment, which means inherent in production that you use up the factors of production. And if he doesn't count that as an actual expense, it could look like... uh, Businesses are underpaying workers. Yes. Actually, he uses the term necessary labor in an ambiguous sense, the necessary labor in primitive society, the hand-to-mouth labor, and the necessary labor uh, that is required for the minimal living of the laborer for the next 24 hours until he comes back to work. Now, this necessary labor obviously involves, the second necessary labor obviously involves the use of the boss's machines, which in turn are, uh, what, what, what term did you use? Uh, depreciating. Now, when I, when I get to it, we'll see, you know, I'm going to get to that next time, but perhaps not with complete satisfaction. Uh, that part of the laborer's working day, which is used to produce his own substance, Marx calls, even in exploitative societies, he calls that necessary labor. Now, Harry is asking uh, uh, whether within that necessary labor is included the value of the amount of the machine that is depreciated, right?
The necessary labor is that part which would be required for the workers' own subsistence. Yeah. produces subsistence in six hours, but he's being made to work 12, and the surplus labor time is six hours. That's over and above uh, allowance for replacement of the equipment. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Of course. Of course, this equipment was in the Engels cotton mill, uh, which was producing the unearned income of Marx. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yes? In your discussion of economic determinism, uh, the first step was a change in the forces of production, like the example you used, the, the woman accidentally drops the seeds, and we have a, uh, the accidental discovery of agriculture. Is that all it amounts to in Marxism, uh, an accident? Well... Uh, he, he says that uh, inventions tend to be produced more or less at the same time. Somebody is whittling or something and he finds his hand slips or something and he finds a new way of, of whittling. Uh, uh, somebody uh, finds how to preserve fire, you see. And uh, it's more or less accidental. It's incremental, he calls it, and it happens gradually over small uh, small gaps, you see. But the, the accident of the, of the seeds, something popping up from the seeds, uh, is unrelated to, in, in his mind, someone discovering the connection between the seeds going in the ground and being able to do it again? Well, he does admit they're not so stupid as to see the connection. Uh, they do see the connection. And, uh, but he, he doesn't think that, uh, in the early stages at least, genius plays any great part, and he thinks that all geniuses are replaceable by other geniuses who tend to come at the same time. Uh, yes? Oh, no, somebody invents something and uh, somebody else may see it and steal it or the guy who invents it may be a possessive individualist and then he, he starts, you know, trying to hide it and so forth and then they may make him uh, a master of apprentices or something like that and give him a witch doctor status. Uh, it, it happens in a lot of different ways. He didn't really, go, I, I've gone into it, I think, even more than he did. Uh, there's not a big, there's not a lot of text to explain here. <laughs> now I want to ask somebody over here. Yes? The, yes, yes, you. The, He doesn't believe in free will in the metaphysical sense. He merely means that man selects among a number of things, whereas the lower animals do not. Now, that doesn't mean that the selection is not caused by previous events. 
You see, man just has a number of options, and he, he, sometimes he goes this way and sometimes he goes that way, but the end always goes this way, you see? So it's this totally automatized uh, uh, selection uh, in the case of, uh, of the ant. He never uses the word free will. He does say freely choose, but he means it in a determinist sense. You have to really take a philosophy course and understand that there's free, such a thing as free choice under <laughs> C, quote, C, unquote, that there's such a thing as free choice under determinism, and that's what he thought too. Um, the, the nature of the denunciation, the moral denunciation that Marx makes of exploitative societies is not a denunciation on grounds of injustice. When he says that capitalism is terrible, as we shall see next time, he is not saying that capitalism is unjust. He is just saying that capitalism is horrible and alienating. And I'm going to try to prove that by texts. He is not making the moral claim that the uh, capitalist uh, is doing an injustice to the worker. It is nicht ein Unrecht, not an injustice, he says. Those are his very words. His, it's rather he's like a doctor saying this is a sick society. Say. Yes, gentlemen. Yes, so oh no! Yeah, if you read the Communist Manifesto, you'll see that he thinks the, the Industrial Revolution was great because now the goods are here, uh, and we'll we'll see. We'll have we'll develop that thought. Uh, I hope next time. It was great, but alienating. Uh, in other words, it produced a lot of things. Uh, bread first, you see. Uh, produced a lot of things. And even though it's been produced in the capitalist system, grab it. Uh, is man's payoff in the system any kind of personal happiness or is the payoff some sort of more mystical species where in the future your grandkids are going to be happy? Well, now... Uh, in the Soviet Union, a kind of a puritanical moralism came into existence, according to which it was said we were really working for our, for our grandchildren. Now, Marx uh, did not actually teach that. Uh, he did not teach collectivism in that sense. He thought that the transition to the ideal society would be very fast and that all of us would be able to enjoy the benefits of this carefree existence. That's the best answer I can give to what you say. Got? Can you comment on, um, it seems that Marx in the 19th century, and it seems at least by stories, that the sense of life was very positive. Can you comment if you know anything about the contrast between these ideas and what was going on around the time? Well, in my last lecture, I showed that there was a, an enormous number of what I called the secular discontents of the, of the uh, Western, uh, of the of the modern world. And all these people in all classes of society were very receptive uh, to 
uh, socialism generally because they hated uh, the uh, the rising middle class. They wanted to épater le bourgeois, you know, uh, and uh, they wanted to. The, the aristocrats hated the rising middle class. The worker, a lot of workers, felt they were being cheated in some way. Uh, sometimes they rioted and broke the machines and so on. So that when you speak of the positive sense of life in Western Europe in the 19th century, you've got to qualify it. That sense of life was not uh, by any means universal. Otherwise, it would not have produced its Marx or its Kierkegaard or its Dostoevsky. Uh, remember how they hated the Crystal Palace, that great symbol of achievement. They hated that thing. You find it uh, coming up again and again in social, in social uh, criticism. Yes? I'm not sure how you draw the speed of reason. What is your reason? You just said reason and language, and therefore, obviously, it's a common Well, we're not sure that they had any describable uh, concept of reason. Uh, that is to say, they have not developed any truly, even uh, pseudo-defensible concept of reason. They have the same concept of reason that the modern cultural anthropologists had as a social product, as concepts that are passed around, tags interpreted nominalistically. You see, reason is a social product. Therefore, when I reason... When I reason, my reasoning is determined by the fact that I was brought up as a poor Irish Catholic boy and so forth and so on, you see? And, and, and this, this is it. And then I acquired this and that interest. I became an academic and, and a professor of philosophy. And now I have a real interest in, in arguing against reason. That's the way my, quote, reason, unquote, acts. Maybe I haven't gotten the crux of your question, Cynthia. Oh, okay. Now, how did Marx view his own theory if reason itself was determined by economic factors? Okay. Now... His, his answer to that, his attempted answer to that, Cynthia, would be the following. In every stage of history, there comes along a group of people, a, a, a special group of people, whose, private, whose individual selfish interest coincides with the public interest. Now, the modern class of the proletariat stand for the future. Therefore, their objections to being exploited have a more objective status because they are more in the mainstream of history. Just as a few generations ago, the capitalists were more objectively right because they were bringing about the next revolution. So therefore, you see, uh, Thomas Jefferson was right and Karl Marx is right. Thomas Jefferson was right in his day because he was standing not only for his interests as a Virginia landholder or whatever you, however you want, you want to put it, the Charles Beard concept of history, but also for what was needed for the further advance of mankind. And more than the proletariat, 
are the professors of philosophy and economics who realize that this is true and can help raise proletarian class consciousness. Who could be more right than they? Objectively, again, in quotes. That's the pseudo-answer which he gave. Any more questions? Uh, the gentleman with the mustache there. Beard. <laughs> Excuse me. It's in the shadow. you have to do for your survival is as boring as hell. Uh, there is truth in that. Uh, and there, but, uh, but what is it which makes it possible uh, for us uh, to work in a self-fulfilling way? Uh, I think it's the development of capitalism, not the development of, of socialism that brings about uh, working in a, in a more creative way. Uh, because it frees the energies, it cuts down the time, and so forth and so on. So there's, it's a certain. I mean, a lot of us have had, we've had to work by the sweat of our brow. That's true. But uh, if it's necessary, I mean, a pro-capitalist person wouldn't complain about this uh, if he was in a bad situation. That is, he wouldn't regard it as any kind of imposition, as if the universe were coming down, were on his back. He would say, well, that's the way circumstances are. I have to do this. Let's admit it's boring. I can't, I can't dance about it. But, uh, any more questions? Yes. What was the relevance of the Because the first stage of exploitation in China, in India, in Egypt, in Mesopotamia, and among the Incas in South America. The first stage of exploitation was exploitation by the state. The state seized control. <laughs> the state nationalized the means of production by nationalizing the irrigation system. And that looks too much like Soviet Russia to be comfortable, and therefore they tried to bury this whole doctrine of Marx. And you don't find it in the, when the Soviets in their, in their uh, uh, classes and their s syllabuses and so forth, when they set this thing out, they omit the Asiatic mode of production. Or else, in some cases, they pretend it refers merely to the production of peasant villages. What? Uh, there's a good uh, book on this subject by a man named Wittfogel, W-I-T-T, F-O-G-E-L and it's called Oriental Despotism. Now there, I have read that. There, there is a, an attempt by a Marxist to answer this. 
another thick volume called The Asiatic Mode of Production. I cannot remember the name of that author. But if you want to weigh the two sides, there's a neutral uh, thing. I think that Wittfogel's thesis was not demolished by, by the other man. Yes? He did not usually use the term selfish uh, in condemning uh, capitalism. His more frequent uh, term was antisocial or alienating or something like that. And that was because of his doctrine of self-fulfillment, because he thought that every individual owed it to himself to fulfill those potentialities. But self-fulfillment equals uh, subordination to the collective, so that by subordinating myself to the collective, I am fulfilling myself. And you get this, it's a confusion, and it's found all through idealist philosophy among, among the German Hegelians, among the British Hegelians, and so on. It is the same thing. See, they, they try to say, I haven't made myself clear, I'm afraid, that they try to say that by working for... Now, it's this old doctrine that you get sometimes in pop psychology that you've got to get out of yourself and stop thinking of yourself so much. This is Alfred Adler developed this uh, with his doctrine of the social sense, that somehow when you get out of yourself and go down and do volunteer work or whatnot, you see, you're both serving society and you're getting to be a happier individual at the same time. It all comes out of this. This gentleman in the yellow shirt up here. What's, what's your the most profound Marxist scholarship is to be found in capitalist countries for the obvious and simple reason. Why? What? No, no. Somebody said it. Free, they can freely think about Marxism. There are many more bo books on Marxism published in capitalist countries, much more research done. In the, in the communist countries, they have to toe the party line. And they're almost as afraid of variant doctrines of Marxism as they are of capitalism. As a matter of fact, I think they even, didn't they, uh, Dr. Peacock, didn't they let Ayn Rand uh, speak uh, for some time against uh, the whole communist system uh, uh, on the ground that she must be crazy because she, because she was advocating capitalism at the very time that they were shooting uh, variant uh, tr uh, uh, communists. Isn't that true? published in a Russian language magazine nationally circulated in Russia, which is how her sister originally discovered who it was, uh, on the ground that this is so far out of the mainstream that uh, it was just like a freak. Yeah. Oh, there's. So, woe unto you if you are a Trotskyist. Uh, 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 because you'd be more likely to because Marxism pervades the culture, you'd be appealing to common premises and you'd be more likely to make converts. But you see, Ayn Rand wouldn't be appealing to any common premises of anyone in the Soviet Union, or hardly anyone. That's, that's the importance of the pervasion of a whole culture by uh, certain type of ideas.
Anybody? Okay. Uh, well, uh, all right. I don't know. <laughs> How can one uphold the communist synthesis of all previous history when, according to Hegelian doctrine, this synthesis may in turn become merely the thesis of a further triad? I don't know. Okay, thank you.